to the City on a Hill Church Forest Hills podcast. We exist to see our neighbors from every culture follow Jesus as King. We're glad you're here and thanks for listening. More information about the life and mission of City on a Hill can be found at coahforesthills.org. As we've started this series on Ephesians, we've looked at how every spiritual blessing comes through Jesus. And this last one we're going to look at is the inheritance that God gives us. And when we think about the inheritance that we get through, through God, we often think heaven. We think eternal life. We think of that idea. But those are only what comes from the greatest gift. They're a byproduct of the greatest gift that we could receive. And the greatest blessing that we can receive, the inheritance that God gives us is himself. God gives us himself. And I believe that that is the greatest gift that any of us could possibly ever receive for a couple of reasons. One, here in this text, in verses three through 14, in 11 verses, the words in him or some version of that, whether it's in Christ or in the beloved or through Christ, that phrase is used 10 times to make sure that we understand that every blessing, every gift that we could possibly receive comes through Jesus. So eternal life, the forgiveness of our sins, heaven are all a byproduct of God giving us himself. It says that he blessed us with every spiritual blessings in Christ. Um, He blessed us with all of these things. We were chosen, we were adopted, we were redeemed, and Jesus is the key to all of these things. But secondly, is that I believe that God is the most wonderful, the most beautiful, the most glorious being in all the universe. Now, if I were to say to you, like, you know, my gift to you is me. My gift to you is time with me, my presence. That's arrogant at best, right? That would be a pretty arrogant statement for for me to be. But for God to say it, Maybe it's actually true. In Isaiah chapter 43, verses five through seven, it says, fear not for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west. I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. We were made to know God and to be satisfied in God. And the greatest gift that God could give us is himself because he is the best gift that we could possibly receive. So let's look at what this inheritance of a life with God looks like. The first idea we see from the text is that we get to enjoy life with God. Our inheritance is enjoying a life with God himself. And in verse 11, it says, in him, we have obtained an inheritance. We've obtained an inheritance. And the wording in there is again, in him, in God, in Jesus. We get to enjoy the gifts of what God gives us because of what Jesus has already done for us. And so Romans 8.30 gives us a vision of what this looks like, the, the full picture of the work of Christ. It says, and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What is that, what is that passage saying? That's, that has often been described as the golden chain of salvation, meaning each little link in that chain is pointing to a part of what Christ has done for us. So uh, those whom he predestined, in other words, those whom he chose before the foundation of the world, not because of anything we would ever do, not because of our potential, but because he is gracious. Those whom he predestined, he also called. That by the spirit, he calls us to himself. He gives us the faith we need to believe. 
But he also justified us, making us right with God. And those whom he justified, he glorified, meaning that one day those who have trusted in Christ will stand before God and we will be called sinless. Meaning that we will no longer suffer the, the, from the penalty of sin, which Jesus took at the cross. We'll no longer have the presence of sin and we'll no longer be affected by the power of sin. And this is this golden chain pointing to the fact that Jesus did all of these things for us. Nothing, none of those points do we have to prove ourselves and none of, uh, none of these points do we have to, to do something. It's not like Jesus died at the cross and says, okay, now it's time for you to get it together. It's now it's time for you to live a better life and improve yourself. But the idea here of this being a golden chain is that the chain is unbreakable, that our salvation in Christ is secure and our inheritance of a life with him cannot be taken away from us. And so we enjoy life with God purely by his grace, purely by the fact that he is a loving and kind God. And so but the fact that we were chosen and adopted and redeemed, all of these things happen because of his grace. We weren't chosen and adopted because we were the best. It's not like being picked first in kickball in first grade. It's, it's not like that. It means if you were the person picked last, you could still get in. It means that God wanted you and he did everything necessary to bring you to himself because he is a sovereign God who's in control of all things. And that should not puff us up. That should humble us. That should humble us for us to say, what grace that our God would not choose us because of our performance or our record, but simply because he is good. What love that God would send his very own son to do all the work necessary for us to have a relationship with God. God has done all the work, but how do we get the inheritance that God has bought for us at the cross? It's in that word obtained. Everybody say the word obtained with me, obtained. We obtained an inheritance. We take possession of it as our own. We take ownership, we grasp it, we receive the work that Christ has done for us. And so how do we do this? Verse 13 tells us, in him you also, when you heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him. So when we heard the gospel, the, 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 heard the truth and we believed in it, we trusted it. We receive and obtain life with God by believing in Jesus and what he has done. Romans 10, 17 makes it this simple. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. It simply means to believe. And so to believe in Christ, there are two aspects to what it means to believe in Christ. And I really believe it means answering yes to these two questions. Is this true? Is the gospel true? You heard and believed the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Is this true? Does this give the best answer to what is true and beautiful and good? Because I believe we were made for truth and we see this. And I actually believe this is a reason we can believe that we have a God who created us is because we long for knowledge that's beyond us. We long to understand the world we live in. And so we're constantly driven to discover and explore. And there's this innate way that God has created us in his image that we long to know. We're rational people. But the problem of sin is that we are broken and it, the way that we try to define truth and discover truth under our, by our own means has really changed over time. And so if you think about the pre-modern world, kind of, you know, kind of the tribal world, it was this idea that the, my tribe or nation could defeat your tribe or nation. And if my tribe won against your tribe, then my God must be true. He must be the one who is the real God. 
If, if, if I pray to God and, and, uh, and, my, and my crops get water, then, then God, is, God is, he favors me. This is where truth comes from. It's very experiential. The modern world shifted to the idea that truth is something that is not out there and above us, but it's something that can be discovered. It's something we study. We build structures and we research and we hypothesize and we do all these, we do, can do experiments to find what truth is. But then as postmodernism came into the world, there's a major shift toward the idea that there's really no absolute truth. There, there, you can't say something's absolute because how do you possibly know? And so, so if there are no absolutes, the problem with that statement is one, that's an absolute statement. So if you said there are no absolutes, are you absolutely sure about that? But secondly, some of those ideas just contradict each other. Because for example, this is just a basic law of, of logic. A cannot be not A and A at the same time. So in other words is this music stand cannot be a music stand and not a music stand at the same time, right? There's probably some sort of quantum physics person in the room who's going to challenge that, but that's okay. But go with me here. We think about the idea of discovering logic and truth, and we're all marked by these ideas. We're marked by the idea that there is, there is something beyond us that we can't understand. We're marked by the idea that we want to discover and understand knowledge, but also with this tension of how can we possibly say something's true? How could any religion say we have the corner on what truth is? C.S. Lewis says that for anything to be absolutely true, there has to be something bigger than creation itself. So for there to be moral absolutes, there has to be a moral law giver. For there to be laws of physics, there has to be someone who gave and ordered those laws of physics. And so every religion, every worldview, every thought, every idea of how we flourish in this world is really trying to answer the question of what gives meaning and purpose to this. And here's where Christianity is different than any other religion or worldview. Every other religion or worldview says, here is the things that you either need to do or the way that you need to live in order to be successful. But the problem is, is how could you possibly know that this list of rules actually works? Christianity puts its cards on the table and says, our God revealed himself to you. Our God came and he put it all out on the table. And the real question is this, is did Jesus live? Did Jesus die? And did Jesus raise again? And that can be tested because Jesus came into human history, born, lived a real life, lived in history, and there is evidence that he died and rose again. And so C.S. Lewis actually said this, and we actually have a T-ad right now up on the orange line. You may have seen this. It says, Christianity, if false, is of no importance, and if true, of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. In other words, this is the type of truth that if it is true, it reorients and changes and shapes your entire life. And it demands that you give yourself to it. The question is, is it true? And do you believe it? The second question related to faith is, is this my only hope? Verse 13 says that this is the gospel of your salvation. In other words, the good news that Jesus came to rescue sinners like you and me. And when you realize that this is your hope, that this is all you need, that this is all you want, that this is truly enough for you, and honestly, that this is truly the only way that you can be made right with God, you praise him. There's sort of a process that happens when you come to faith. You, we hear the word, we're, we're convicted of its truth, but then we're kind of, kind of gobsmacked. We're kind of hit right in the face with the idea that this isn't just an abstract truth out there. This is something that God did for me. This is something that God did for me, that he died for me personally. He died for my sins. He died to, because I was separated from him and wanted a relationship with me. 
And what happens is when we see that, we want it, we want to obtain it, we want to receive it. But, but there's a thing about taking this as your own. You have to come to God empty-handed. So imagine that you invite me over for dinner and I, I'm a little suspect of your ability to cook. And so I'm like, you know what? I'm gonna bring my own dinner. I'm just not real sure that you've got the chops and you're gonna be able to make something. So I walk in the house and as soon as the door opens, man, it smells good. And I look and I look at the table and it is one of the best looking meals that I've ever seen in my life. And you invite me to come to the table, but I've brought my dinner. What do I have to do in order to receive your dinner? I have to put mine down. In the same way, when we come to Christ, we can't bring a bunch of stuff with us. We can't bring our good actions. We can't bring our best intentions. We can't bring our potential. We can't bring any of those things. We have to lay those things down in order to receive the gift that God gives us. And in fact, the only things that we actually do bring with us, God calls us to lay down. He calls us to bring our sins and our shortcomings and our imperfections and our struggles and our doubts. And he says, just give them to me. You don't have to have everything figured out to come to faith in Jesus. He will help you figure it out as you go. But the beauty of this is not only do we get God, but God gets us. You ever think about that? The fact that the, the gospel, the truth is that we are, he is our inheritance. But the Bible calls us his portion, his people. First Peter says, we are a people for his own possession. And he loved this so much that Tim Keller says, when we look at the cross where the father and the son were willing to lose each other for you, that's how you know you are treasured. You know your love and your treasure. And he did this according to the counsel of his will. He worked all of these things out. Why? Because he wanted a life with you. Not because God's incomplete. This isn't Jerry Maguire, you know, you complete me. This isn't that. But because he is love and the way he demonstrates his love is by giving himself to us and taking us to himself. What would change if you really believed that you could enjoy life with God? If you, if you realize what Zephaniah 3 says, that God sings over you, he delights in you. I think when we come together as a church, I think we would drop the pretense. We would drop the, we would drop the facade that we have to have it all together. We would, we would drop our guard and we would worship God freely because we know we're safe, known, and loved by him. So we get to enjoy life with God. But secondly, we get to enjoy life with God together. So we enjoy life with God personally, but not just that. We enjoy life with God as a people, as a community. Now remember, the, the letter to the Ephesians is this vision for this new redeemed family, this new people that God is calling to himself. And these people are in, to enjoy God together as the church. Now, I'm not saying it's less than personal a personal relationship. Just, just by coming to a church on a Sunday does not make you right with God. You have to own this. You have to put your faith in Jesus. But it is more than a personal relationship. This is the first glimpse we're starting to get at the type of family that God is calling together. When we get to Ephesians chapter two, we're gonna really unpack this and really go deep. But we see this, just this first glimpse of a people who are called together from all different walks of life. Uh, my kids, one of their favorite book series is the Mysterious Benedict Society. And they talk about it constantly. So I decided I'm gonna start reading this book. I'm like two chapters in, um, but I've, I'm enjoying it so far. And the idea is Mr. Benedict is this benefactor and he begins to call together these children from every different walk of life, um, children who are growing up in orphanages, children have these different abilities and skills, but the commonality is that they were called together under a common purpose with a new common identity. 
In the same way, God is calling together a people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every temperament, every sin struggle together as this new people in God. And in verses 12 and 13, we see what God is up to. In verse 12, it says, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Now, two questions we have to kind of answer to help us understand what's being said here is, who is we? And then secondly, what are they hoping for? The we here, as Paul is writing this, he says, we, he means the Jews, God's chosen people. If you look back in the Old Testament, if you're not as familiar with the Bible, God called out a people, um, a, a, you know, a very lowly people. He, he didn't call them because they were impressive, but he called them together. Uh, and he said, I'm going to bless all nations through you. You're going to be my special people. And through you, the entire world should be blessed. And, and this, this people, they long for and they hope for a Messiah who would come and who would make the world right. This hope they were hoping for was the Christ. The word Christ or Messiah mean the same thing. Someone who would come and set their people free and establish a kingdom. And he, what he's saying is he's saying, we, the Jews who believed in Christ, saw that Jesus Christ was that Messiah. That he wasn't someone coming with military power, but he's somebody coming who's laying his life down as a servant. Somebody who's coming, who's, uh, who's coming in that gentle and lowly manner in which Matt talked about earlier. And so we see the Jews who first believe, but then verse 13 says, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, that you also means everybody else, the Gentiles, the non-Jews who what? They heard and they believed in the same Jesus, not some sort of second-class citizenry, but also that same hope in Christ is now given to them. And what this means is that anybody can get in on this. Anybody can receive this and be treated as God's children. Galatians 3, 27 through 29 says, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there's no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. In other words, there is nothing that can keep you out of God's family. Your race can't keep you out of it. Your gender can't keep you out of it. Uh, your status or your past, nothing can keep you out of God's family as long as you're willing to humble yourself and receive the life that God offers through Jesus. Now notice the shift in verses 13 and 14. So it went from we and you, kind of us and them language is not always that helpful. But in verse 13, it says, who were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of whose inheritance? Our inheritance. So we and you becomes our. And there are some implications of this and the fact that we are enjoying this inheritance, a life with God together. One of these is that we get to see radical diversity in the kingdom of God with uncommon unity radical diversity with uncommon unity. We get to celebrate the diversity of who we are as God's people. We get to celebrate that we come from different ethnicities and different backgrounds and different temperaments and different wirings. We get to celebrate that God has called together both men and women, that we don't lose these things. When we look at those things in Galatians 3, you don't lose your identity, you don't lose your ethnicity, you don't lose your gender, but these are not things that could keep you out of God's family. In fact, in God's family, these things are things that are vivified and honored and celebrated. So we believe that every person should be able to flourish as a part of God's family. But also means we recognize our past. 
It means that there are some things culturally and historically that may keep certain people groups uh, at at odds with one another. And so the Jews and the Gentiles, and we're going to unpack this in Ephesians 2, they had some historical stuff they had to work out. They had some things that they needed to struggle with. In America, we have some things around race and around gender that we need to figure out about how we can address so that we can flourish as God's people. But the great hope in this is that we long for a better future together. The unity that we long for and hope for has already been bought for us in Christ. And so we look forward to a day when we will be with him, in, with him forever. Bearing, and we also bear one another's burdens. You bear my struggles, I bear yours. Your joys become my joys. And those 59 one another statements we see in the New Testament are ways that we love and care for each other as this new people called together in Christ. We enjoy God most when we do it together. I don't know if you're a music fan, but one of the things I've missed so much over the last two years is the ability to go to a concert. Uh, And because going to a concert is just so much different than sitting in your living room and watching the same performance on YouTube. So if I watch a performance on YouTube by myself, it's just better if I go in and share share this with with other people. The life we enjoy with God is just better when we share it with others. There are times when we need to pick each other up and remind each other of the gospel to tell each other, hey, just keep going. It's going to be worth it. Just keep going. So who can you help enjoy life with God? Often the question we ask is, how do I grow? Who's going to help me feel connected? And that's not a bad question necessarily, but we often miss the idea behind what Paul said to the Corinthians, follow me as I follow Christ. Who are you helping enjoy God? A few ways that we can do that is, is again, is just to be here. Be here early, uh, you know, enjoy other people, spend time together. Invite someone to read the Bible with you or, or to study with you, to just spend time with you. Get, get it connected to a community group. These are all ways that we can enjoy life with God together. The last thing we see is that we get to enjoy life with God now and forever. We enjoy this together as God's people, not just forever, but this is a, a reality we enjoy now. And the reason we can enjoy this now is that it's not going to be taken away from us because it's not up to us to keep it. When I was about seven years old, um, I went to Toys R Us. And anybody remember Toys R Us back in the day? I love Toys R Us. Um, it was this incredible store. There was a giant giraffe named Jeffrey, and it was the greatest place on earth. They don't exist anymore. Uh, and so, because Amazon, I think, I think Amazon killed Jeffrey the giraffe. I think that's what happened. Um, and, so, um, and so I remember going, I was seven years old. I love the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And I, wa- and I wanted this Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle bus. And if you ever watched the cartoon, they had the bus and it was the coolest thing in the world. And my granddad took me and it was, and he, and it was about $20. And I, I just begged him. I was like, granddad, let me carry the $20. I'm seven. I'm a grown man. I can handle this. And so he, he told son, I don't think this would be a good idea. Don't do it. So finally he relented. I put the $20 in my pocket. And what do you think happened? I lost the $20. Thankfully, our salvation is not left up to us like that. Because if it were up to us to keep ourselves in a relationship with God, we wouldn't do it. Our hearts are prone to wander. We tend to look towards other things, but God has given us something, someone to help keep us in a relationship with him, and that's the Spirit. Verse 13 says that we were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. God promised he would send his spirit to to point us towards Jesus and to help us follow him, to extend the gospel to the world. And he did so as a seal. The word the seal was like a wax seal on a letter. 
And that seal was there for security. It was there to make sure that the contents on the inside stayed there and that you knew that the, the letter had been tampered with if the seal was removed. In the same way, God has sealed us with the Spirit to keep us secure, but also to identify us that we belong to the King. And this is not just a, a future inheritance. This is something that we get right now. We get life with God now. It's John 6, 47, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life, not will have eternal life, but has eternal life. How does that work? We see in verse 14 that the Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance. The word literally there is like a down payment. Not like a down payment on a house where if you stop making the payments, you don't get the house. But it's more like the, the symbolism of a wedding ring. A wedding ring is meant to be a symbol, not only of the love that you share on that day, the commitment you share on that day, but a symbol of the future together that you're going to have this covenant that's binding you together, that you get to enjoy now that will only get better one day. In the same way, life with God starts now. So what does that entail? What does life with God now entail? I think it entails both hope and glory. We've touched a little bit on hope, but the idea of hope and glory. Jesus gives us hope, not like I hope my Uber comes. Like I, I, It is a real hope that drives us and gives us a reason to live and satisfies us. Every single person in this room and in this world is looking to something to give us hope, something that is gonna help drive us and keep us hanging on. And I really think it can either be found in four places. It's, we try to find it in people, places, paths, and purpose. We try to find in people, if I can just find the right romantic relationship, if my kids will one day grow up to be what I hope that they would be, if they could just do better than me, if I can just find the approval from someone else, then I'll have hope. And maybe it's places, it's where I'm gonna live or the neighborhood I land in or, or this, I'm just desiring a certain season of life and if I can just get to that place, everything's going to be okay. Maybe it's the path we're on. It's just it's the career we're going to take or just some sense of direction or purpose giving this, us this overarching feeling that our life matters. But unlike all of those which will, may not pan out for us, Jesus never leaves. He's the only one who can truly give rest and satisfaction. He's the only one who can look, help us look at all of those things and say, even if those things don't pan out, he is still enough for me. And that's why the psalmist said in Psalm 130, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word, I hope. And this hope now causes us to look to our hope forever, that the Spirit is pointing us towards an eternal hope. It says here, until we acquire possession of it, and, and he says that, what he's saying here is that our hope now works together with our hope in the future. Our hope forever gives us confidence that he's going to come through. Richard Koken says, for whether we are riding on the highest peaks of joy and success or sinking in the lowest troughs of pain and failure, Christians can always sing, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. But not just that our, our forever hope drives our hope for today, but the hope we have today and the ways we see God working in our lives just whet our appetite for the future. When you experience the forgiveness of sin now, 
And we're talking about the momentary sin where you have, you have messed up and you confess your sin to, to God and you believe that Jesus paid for that. What that makes you do is it makes you look at the future and say, there's going to be a day where sin will be no more. When you worship Jesus today, maybe just this morning or you're listening to something this week, it primes our hearts for the day that we're going to stand before God face to face. That's hope. But also glory. We give God glory now because he saved us. The reason that we come here on a Sunday morning is to praise God for the fact that he has given us life in him. So to give glory is to give honor and attention and devotion because he is worth it. It's giving ourselves away. Now, giving ourselves away may, may seem like a struggle, this idea that I've got to give something up to follow Jesus. And I'd be lying to you if I said that coming to Jesus means that it's just easy. You don't have to lay some stuff down. It may mean uh, an idea of just being in control of your life or certain habits or desires. But what we find when we come to Jesus is that he is truly glorious. He is truly the only one who is worthy of giving our lives to because no matter what Jesus calls us to lay down, he gives us so much more in himself. And because eternal glory waits for us, we will one day take possession of that and we will worship God face to face. So as we wrap up, how is God calling you to respond to the inheritance of a life with him? Maybe you're a follower of Jesus. Maybe you have trusted Jesus. Are you living like you have this good gift? Are you enjoying the great blessing of a life with God that every single day you get to wake up and you get to go to the God who loves you? But maybe this morning you're not yet a follower of Jesus. I want you to know that you can only have life with God through Jesus Christ. Uh, Tony Evans told this old story, and I think it really captures the idea of why Jesus is the only way to God. He said that this rich man had lost his son early in life, and, and he had, this man had never had another son. He never had an heir, and, and he dies, and all of his items are going up for auction. And, and the first item of the auction is a painting of the son. It's a painting of his son. And, and multiple rounds go by and nobody bids on this painting. And, and finally, just as, as, as it seems like no one's gonna bid, there's someone from the back of the room, an elderly gentleman steps forward and he says, sir, I was the servant of the man who died. And if nobody will take the picture of his son, I, want, I wanna know if I can have it. I don't have any money, but I just wanna know if I can have it. And so the auctioneer goes around one more time and he says, is there anyone who will bid on the picture of the son? No, but nobody does. And so he said to the servant, yes, sir, the picture is yours. And so the elderly servant slowly walks forward to take hold of the portrait and he looks lovingly on the boy's image and then he tucks it under his arm and heads toward the back of the room. And then to everyone's shock, the auctioneer picks up his gavel, bangs it down and says, the auction is now over. And everybody's looking around and they're confused. Like, wait a minute, what about all the expensive stuff that needs to be brought and bid on? How, how can the auction be over? And the auctioneer replied, the father's will says that the auction was to begin with the picture of his son. And he valued his son so highly that he stipulated that whoever took his son's picture would inherit everything. Essentially, he who has the son has everything else. He who does not have the son gets nothing. Friends, we can receive Jesus today and receive all the life that God gives us. Let's pray. Oh,